Well, good morning. Today, we are going to be studying uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 12, verses 11 to 21. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip, or I guess uh, scroll there. We uh, have been studying 2 Corinthians now for the better part of the year, verse by verse, and are finding ourselves today at the end of a longer section of the book that's sometimes called the Fool's Speech. It runs from the beginning of chapter 11 through the end of chapter 12 where we find ourselves today. And if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, I'm a little concerned that it might feel like you're walking in on the end of a conversation because a lot has been going on. And I think that it can be sometimes confusing if you're not aware of the context. So for example, when Paul starts off our section today by by saying, I have been a fool, forgive me this wrong, If you don't remember what's going on in chapters 11 and 12, it might not strike you that he's being incredibly sarcastic there. So because of that, I want to take just a moment longer than usual in our introduction time to catch you up on what's been going on between Paul and the church at Corinth. Remember that Paul founded the church at Corinth. He was a traveling missionary, and after he established it, he moved on to continue his missionary work around the Mediterranean. In his absence, people have been accusing him of some things. A a group of people that Paul calls super apostles have been making themselves look good by putting Paul down. Now, I wish that air quotes existed back then because there's never been a more appropriate time. These so-called super apostles were really anything but. We know that they were more concerned with how someone said something than what they had to say. We also know from chapter 11 that they're preaching a false gospel. So it might not surprise you then to know that in Paul's absence, they have been accusing him of some things. They've been making themselves look better by putting him down. And in particular, they've been accusing him of mismanaging his money. So Paul was a traveling missionary, and he required the support of local churches to do his work. But in Corinth he made the decision not to accept any financial support for them, precisely to avoid the implication that he was using his role as a church leader for his own financial gain. But in his absence, these super apostles and the people in Corinth had twisted that and had become offended by it. Now, we're not exactly sure what was going on in their minds, but we can infer that they were thinking something like, what? Our money's not good enough for you, Paul. What's wrong with my money? Why wouldn't you take it? They become offended by his decision. And so the last several chapters have been Paul defending himself and his ministry against these accusations. The reason this is called the fool's speech is because Paul thinks this is an incredible waste of time. He thinks it's a foolish thing to do because his brothers and sisters in Christ at the church in Corinth should have known better. He also thinks it's a foolish thing to do to compare his ministry credentials against those of these so-called super apostles. Now, after a particularly harsh or sarcastic section of a letter like this, you might expect Paul to say something like, we're through, you and I. If you're going to accuse me of something like this, then I have no choice but to turn my back on you, shake the dust off my feet, go to churches 
who really would appreciate me. I can't waste my time on you. So we're going to agree to disagree. I wish you all the best. That's not what Paul wants at all. In fact, in our text today, Paul is going to put forward a way of relating to the Corinthians that's meant to encourage them to build up the church. He's setting out an example, his example, of how they should relate to each other so that when he comes to visit them again, they might be unified together. Paul loves the church at Corinth, and he wants to bring them to love and know Jesus. Now, I want to say just one more thing about our text today before we jump into it. This is a pretty unique text to apply because Paul is defending himself against a specific accusation in a personal relationship between him and the Corinthians. And I don't think that this situation is necessarily going to apply to many of us. I doubt that many of us are going to be angry at a traveling missionary who brought the gospel to us and then refused to accept our money. There might be some close parallels, but where I think we'll really find value in today's time is looking at the principles that Paul is using to apply in these in this particular situation, to understand those principles and then apply them in our context. So to do that, we're going to start by unpacking Paul's defense in response to these Corinthian accusations. We're then going to look at a warning Paul gives for when those principles are ignored and understand them in a specific application of church unity. And then finally, having identified several principles that can be applied in our lives, We're going to focus on Paul's foundation for making these claims, answering the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? And how does that tie the whole section of the letter together? What we'll find as we look at Paul's example in this text is an encouragement to live a self-denying, unified life with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to recognize that the power to live like that comes from our identity in Christ all of us sinners who need a Savior. And our purpose is to bring all glory to God. That's where we're headed today. So if you have found the section of text, please stand in honor of God's word. As I read for us from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go, and sent the brother with him, did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? 
It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking, in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So, to start to understand this text a little more deeply, we're going to approach it in three sections. The first is what I'm calling Paul's defense. That's a plea for personal unity. The second is what I'm calling Paul's concern. He's going to give a specific warning about church unity. And then finally, Paul's foundation. We're going to understand his footing for making these claims and how that's grounded in our unity with Christ. So first, Paul's defense. You can see in this text that Paul has some specific responses to the accusations of the Corinthian church. Look in verse 13, for example. He says, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Or in verse 15, he says, If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He's saying, I didn't do anything wrong to you, except that I didn't take your money. So if I didn't burden you, if I loved you more, am I to be loved less? How have I treated you badly? I think actually in verse uh, 13, you can really see that sarcasm coming out when he says, forgive me this wrong. He's not really asking for their forgiveness there. In verse 14, he continues his defense. He says, I'm coming to see you again, and when I come, I'm not going to ask for your money then either. I won't be a burden. He gives this really interesting reason. He says, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I think what he's saying there is that when it comes to financial support, children don't really get to decide how their parents spend their money. It just doesn't work that way. He's not saying that children shouldn't honor their parents. He's not saying that children shouldn't love their parents. He's just saying when you make decisions about money, it's the parents who decide, not the children. Like when your parents come to uh, family weekend in college, they usually pay for lunch. You don't pay for lunch. It just works that way, right? He's saying, this is how it works. I'm your spiritual father, you are my spiritual children, and I am the one who decides how this goes. In verse 16 through 18, he continues his defense. He says, I didn't burden you, so you say I was crafty. I sent brothers to you. Did they do anything wrong? No, we acted in one accord. So how have I wronged you? See, in verses 11 through 18, he's defending himself against the Corinthian accusations by saying what he didn't do. He's denying their accusations. But also in these verses, he puts forward a positive way of interacting with the Corinthians that's meant to set an example for them and by extension for us. He's saying, I didn't do what you accused me of, but instead I acted this way. And it's in those examples that we find two really compelling principles that we can apply to ourselves. The first comes in verse 14. He says, I seek not what is yours, but you. And then in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I seek not what is yours, but you. 
He's saying, it's not about the money. You think I want your money? You think I want to be the apostle sponsored by the Corinthian church with your name on my jersey? You are aiming way too low. You think I'm a greedy person? I am far greedier than you imagined. You think I crave cheap, transient trinkets like your money? I desire something much more costly. I desire you, a deep and abiding relationship with brothers and sisters rooted in the gospel. I care about your soul, whether you know and love Jesus, not the money or status that I could gain through knowing you. To help us connect with what Paul is saying, I'm going to make a quick contrast. Because we definitely know what it's like when people do things that are more about the money than souls. Like the cousin who cozies up to his rich aunt at the end of her life so he can get all the inheritance, even though he's never spent a minute with her before. And boy, do we hate this when it rears its head in the church. Like the stereotypical televangelist flying around the world in a Gulf Stream, having achieved that status and money through deceptive and manipulative means. In fact, I think we have a word for it in our culture. It's called being a gold digger. And Paul is saying, I'm not a gold digger. Just the opposite. I think that's the principle we want to capture. Through his example in the Corinthian church, Paul is calling us to see people as more than their possessions. Paul is calling us to see people, to value people, not what those people can do for us. It's a selfless, self-denying way of seeing people because it focuses on them and not on us. I don't want to know you because of what you can give to me, because of what you have. I want to know you because I want to know you. Now, I think this is actually kind of a sneaky principle because I don't think at first glance anyone would say, I'm guilty of that. I am a gold digger. But this principle has a way of sneaking up on us in some pretty deceptive ways. I think each of us has the tendency to look at people in a way that prioritizes their worldly possessions more than their souls. So I want to give you a few examples of how that might be affecting us in ways you're not aware of. The first question I would ask is, when you see people, do you often see their social status or their wealth first before you see anything else? So when you see someone wealthier than you, are you quick to jealousy? Or maybe you're quick to judgment, thinking that how they spend their money is frivolous and a waste. Now, I'm not saying we should encourage frivolous spending, but there's a reason that Jesus says it's going to be more difficult for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So when you look at someone who's wealthy, do you see frivolity and excess? Or do you see someone who's in danger of losing their soul? Or what about when you see someone who's less wealthy than you, maybe someone in poverty? Do you only see wasted chances and poor decisions? Or do you see the very people that Jesus came to save, the poor and the downtrodden? I think another way we can be guilty of this is by seeing people for what they can offer us. And it can be more than dollar signs, right? It can be status or good grades, It happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was uh, at a conference for my job, 
and I was doing this thing called networking. Uh, I was in uh, sort of an after-hours reception, and I found myself with some pretty influential people in my field. One person in particular has the ability to make or break careers by her decisions about tenure, by her decisions about grant funding, which is really important in my job. And so you know what you do when that person says, hey, let's sing karaoke and dance to the time warp. (laughs) You say, okay. (laughs) Because you want to make an impression, right? You want that person to remember you when they're reviewing your grant application so they can give you the grant. You want them to remember you when they're writing a letter of promotion. And so I find my, found myself talking to this person because I wanted what she could give to me. Not because I wanted to know whether she knew Jesus. Not because I wanted to know what her soul. I think it's really insidious that we can look at people for what they can give to us. We can want to be in relationship because of what people give to us. Money, social status, not because we want to know them. Paul says, I don't desire what belongs to you. I desire you. And not only that, but verse 15 says, not only do I desire you, but I am willing to spend and be spent for your soul. I will most gladly spend all of my money and all of my time and all of myself for your souls. That's the second principle today. I think it's such an important framework for people to consider. When you spend your money and your time, are you, send, are you spending it in service of people's souls? When you feel tired at the end of the day, was, because it, was it because you spent yourself in pursuit of people's souls? Now, I'm not trying to say that full-time ministry is the only job worth pursuing or that there aren't times when you have to spend your money and time on other things. But my question is, what are you aiming at? Are you aiming at people's souls and sometimes have to spend money on overhead, like a place to stay or food to eat? Or are you aiming at your own self-advancement and sometimes give back when it's convenient or makes you look good? I want to spend and be spent for people's souls. I think that principle has wide-ranging implications. I want to name just a couple of them for us today. I think a lot of us are in ministry contexts that are really quite challenging. Many of us are in, in situations regularly where we see a lot of pain and suffering, where we're consumed by the brokenness that we experience, where we don't see people coming to Jesus as often as we'd like. We don't see the kind of healing that we know is possible in the gospel, and that can feel insurmountable and demoralizing. But I think Paul's framework here is encouraging in that regard. Are you spending yourself for the pursuit of people's souls? Then you don't have to justify your existence by the results of your ministry. Instead, you are called to honor God in the way you pursue people who need Jesus. I also think that principle applies in parenting. I know how demoralizing it can feel to be bogged down by the futility in life. I know how hard it can be to look at your children and see only the worst parts of yourself in them. 
But friends, remember that only God can save. So be willing to spend and be spent for the souls of your children. And at the end of the day, you have exhausted yourself in that pursuit, then it has been a good day. The final example I want to give is one we don't talk a lot about around here. That's one about retirement. So I was uh, talking with a good friend of mine who I've known for 10 years. He's retired now. And he was telling me a couple of weeks ago, he said something like, I really got a bum deal with this retirement. Because he's been struggling with illness and pain and suffering basically since the day he retired. He said something to the effect of, it's not what I had hoped for. And it got me thinking about retirement, about this idea that we could work for 40 or 50 years and then have this period of time at the end of our lives that belongs to us, that we earned, that we deserve because of how hard we've worked and how hard we've saved. Well, friends, I think if we're looking to our retirement as a source of hope, first off, it's definitely going to let you down. But second, who said your life belonged to you? I think Paul's call to spend and be spent in the pursuit of people's souls applies all the time. Whether you are in school, whether you are in your first job, whether you are in your midlife crisis, or whether you are ending your life in a retirement, your call is to honor God by pursuing people for their souls. You see, friends, these two principles today are incredibly self-denying ways of thinking. I don't desire what belongs to you, what you can give me. I desire to know you. And I'm willing to give myself and my money and my time entirely in the pursuit of those gospel-centered relationships that are all about bringing souls to know and love Jesus. The next section of Paul's letter today focuses on what happens when those interpersonal relationships break down. And he focuses specifically on the context of the church. In the beginning part, we've talked about how Paul puts forward an example of how we can relate to each other. Here we're going to think about what happens when that goes awry. That's what I'm calling Paul's concern, a warning about church unity. And the thing that I want you to take away from this section of our time together is that each of us has a responsibility, a personal responsibility, for the unity of the church. Church unity is not merely a responsibility for the leadership, for the elders, for the church staff. It's a matter for all of us. In the text today, you can see that Paul is very concerned with the unity of the church. He says, I'm going to come to visit you a third time. And then in verse 20, he says, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me, or, and you may not find me as you wish. He's afraid there's going to be disunity among them. And then he goes into a list. He says, I'm afraid there's going to be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. Now, I want to make a comment about Paul's lists. The first is that you're going to see a second list that I'm not going to talk about today in verse 21. There's a list of sexual sins that Paul talks about. And the thing that holds 
the list we are talking about, about slander and deceit and these sexual sins together, is they're both things that the Corinthian church were dealing with. But the second list really applies more to next week's text, and so we'll leave it for then. The second thing I want to say about Paul's lists in the New Testament is they're not all the same. I think you can have a tendency to be reading through one of Paul's letters and see this list of 10 or 15 things and be like, okay, there's the list. I'm not really going to read it because it always means the same thing. That's not true. They're actually all put in uh, the specific letter for a reason. None of them are the same. The other thing I want to say is not all the words in the list are supposed to be synonyms for each other. They're actually grouped around a theme, but they're meant to show a different angle, a different perspective on that theme. So why this list? Why is it here? What does it tell us? Well, the list that Paul gives us here are all selfish sins. They're all relational sins that would directly threaten the unity of the church for when Paul comes again. I think it's meant to give us a vivid display of what happens when personal relationships break down in the church. And before you write them off too quickly, it might be worth thinking about whether you're prone to any of them and that, how that might be threatening the unity of the church at Trinity. So I'm going to go through the list and I'm going to ask you some questions whether these might apply to you. It's important for you to know I don't have anyone or any specific circumstance in mind as I'm reading these. So quarreling. Do you enjoy arguing for the sake of it? Are you unwilling to yield, unwilling to be wrong? Does that come out in arguments that are unproductive and leave you feeling angry? Does that happen in certain areas around church doctrine or maybe in areas around social justice of the church? What about jealousy? Do you look at others around you and wish you had what they had? How does that bleed into your relationships? Maybe you wish you'd been picked to lead something, to be in charge of something. Maybe you desire to have a role in the church that God hasn't called you to. How does that shape your view of the church? What about anger? How do you respond when someone in your small group has responded with judgment instead of understanding? How do you respond when someone does something that wrongs you, takes away something you deserve? Do you get angry at them? Or hostility? Do you find yourself grumbling at an imperfect church that handles something differently than you would have? What about when the leadership makes a decision that you wouldn't have? What if that decision costs you something, affects you in a personal way? Or slander? Do you talk badly about people to make yourself look better? What about when someone does something that annoys you or lets you down? Or gossip? Do you feel like you want to be in the know about something? Maybe someone has confessed sin to you and you want to seem like you're an important part of their lives, so you talk about it with other people. Maybe you even disguise it by not using their names so it doesn't seem like you're talking about it behind their backs. Conceit. What does it make that makes you feel conceited? Is it looking holy or important? Or disorder. How can you trust your leaders, recognizing that we are still sinners? What do you do when something happens you don't like in the church? Do you breed disorder or do you seek unity? Friends, these are all takes one to know one situations. 
These are all things that I have been guilty of or in some cases continue to struggle with. And I don't mention them to pour on shame or guilt. My goal is to highlight that each of us has a role in seeking and displaying church unity. It is not merely the responsibility of the leadership to foster unity, but the specific responsibility of each of us to pursue the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's actually a part of the covenant that we sign and pledge to each other when we join the church. Jamie Dunlop is a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he was writing about church unity. He wrote this. How can we as sinful and selfish people gather together, not with the forced unity that denies differences, overlooks difficulty, or compromises the message of the gospel, but with unity that preserves the message of the gospel and acts as a compelling testimony to its value? If you've been a part of a church for any amount of time, you know that these goals are difficult to achieve. Churches far too often become places of division, complaints, and unhappy people. Therefore, they fail to display to the watching world the power of the gospel that should be at work within them. And that's what brings us to our final point today. What I'm calling Paul's foundation. So far, Paul has made a defense of his ministry, highlighted some ways that we can relate to each other that are at their core self-denying, selfless. He's also shown us what happens when that type of selfless love for one another goes awry. He's shown us his concern for the unity of the believers in Corinth. So where does Paul get his footing to make these types of claims? The answer to that comes in verse 19. Let's look at it again together. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Most of what I said today so far is something that a lot of people around the world think is important. Lots of people think money corrupts. Lots of people think that you should live in harmony with others. So what is it about these ideas that are uniquely Christian, I think it comes down to two things, power and purpose. The power to live like Paul is calling us to doesn't come from some humanistic sense of altruism. No, the power for the kind of self-denying love that Paul is displaying comes from his identity in Christ. And its purpose is to bring God glory, not ourselves. So let's talk about power for a minute. In verse 19, Paul says to the church at Corinth, have you thought that these two entire chapters have been because I wanted to make myself look good? Have you thought I've been defending myself against you? I haven't been defending myself because I am nothing to defend. In fact, in verse 11, he actually says that. He says, I am nothing. This isn't some feigned sense of humility here. Paul remembers who he is without Jesus. He is a murdering, persecuting, self-justifying, despicable sinner. He hasn't been defending himself because he's got nothing to defend. His sense of security in this world doesn't come from lifting up his identity. It comes from resting in the identity that's his in Christ. 
I'm not speaking on my behalf. I'm speaking in Christ, he says. Did you see that in the second half of 19? We have been, in the sight of God, we have been speaking in Christ. And that language should be like a hyperlink. When you scroll over it, it should make you think about this entire letter. What has Paul said about being in Christ? What do the rest of Scripture say about being in Christ? And how does that rely here? How is that different than self-defense, self-preservation? One of the texts that I think is particularly helpful from 2 Corinthians comes in chapter 5. I'm just going to read it for you. It starts in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Who are you? In Christ, you are a child of God. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are a new creation. So you are no longer a slave to your own self-interest because your own self-interest is now tied to Christ. And that frees you to love like he loved. It frees you to be who he tells you you are. And so in this context, the way that Paul is calling for a self-denying unity rests on his unity with Christ. We can be free not to seek our own self-interest because our identity doesn't focus on ourselves. We can seek the interests of others. We can pursue them for who they are and not what they can give to us. We can be free to give of our time and our money and ourselves because we are unified with Jesus. The power to live like Paul is calling us to live in self-denying unity comes from our identity in Christ. We have nothing to defend, so we are free to give. And its purpose, its purpose is to glorify God. See, in our text today, Paul doesn't seek to bind the reader to himself, but to Christ. If we look back at the beginning of this section in chapter 11, Paul starts out by saying his goal is to present the church as a pure bride to Christ. He wants the thoughts of the Corinthians to be protected from being led astray. He wants them to be committed to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Friends, one of the great accomplishments of the gospel is an enduring and perfect unity. Unity with Christ, unity with each other. Through the blood of Christ, there are no more divisions. There are no more separations. There's no more hostility. But rather, there is a perfect unity that Christ purchased, reconciling to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I I don't think it's too much of a reach to say that unity is the primary purpose that God has in mind for his church. By that I mean his covenant people. To seek unity in the gospel, bringing people together from every tribe and tongue and nation under the unifying message that Jesus died to save all of us 
from our selfish and sinful ways and to bring glory to God in a unified worship. You know, the title of, our, of my sermon today is, I think, Living Together in Christian Unity. And the way Paul is hoping to reconcile his relationship with the church at Corinth provides for us an incredible example of what a community of believers could look like. It's like people who don't give up on, them, on themselves when the going gets tough. It looks like seeking to live and love in self-denying ways that prioritize a deep and enduring relationship focused on souls and not money or things or status. This type of community relentlessly pursues unity together, avoiding the pitfalls that are so common in church life. And this type of community recognizes that the power to live a self-denying Unified life with our brothers and sisters in Christ comes from our identity in Christ. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. This kind of community recognizes that our purpose is to bring glory to God. Now friends, this type of unified community in the gospel is not some happenstance byproduct of being a Christian. Unity with Christ and unity together is an essential foundational, organic part of being a Christian. So as we close our time together today, I want to leave you with the words of Jesus from John chapter 17. I'm going to read them for us and then we're going to pray together. I ask that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Will you pray with me? Father, help us. Help us to seek this kind of unity together as your people. Help us to be free of self-advancement. Help us to be free of pursuing what we need out of a sense of entitlement. Help us to rest confidently in our identity in Christ. Help us to love like you have loved Father, it's so hard for us to do that because we're so consumed with ourselves. But we believe that the power of the gospel is transformative. So help us, we pray, Father. It's in your name. Amen. Now, as we transition to...